This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfcc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. My name is Brian, and I'm a priest here at the San Francisco Zen Center. Um, I moved to Green Gulch Farm in 2003, and I moved to Tassajara in 2006, and I've been at Zen Center for most of the time, ever since. And I actually chose these talks for that exact reason. Um, last year, when Mary Stairs was Tonto, she's now the Tenza, and she wanted to have some time in the summer for Wednesday night talks to have some continuity. It's a time of year where we don't really have many classes. And so rather than have every Wednesday night talk be kind of disparate and, and not exactly related, she asked Wendy Lewis to give three straight talks on one uh, Zen work of her choice. And she chose the Xin Xin Ming, which is by the third Chinese ancestor of Zen. And then she asked me if I would do it this year. So she asked me several months ago, I think. Um, uh, at least I, th we lived in a completely different world when she asked me. And so I said, yeah, Tenzo Kyokin, that sounds great. I had been studying it because I was 37 I'm 38 now, and uh, I was 37. Dogen wrote Tenzo Kyokun when he was 37, and he was writing it about the time he went to China to find an enlightened master when he was 24, and I moved to Tassajara when I was 24. So I felt a lot of resonance with the, this piece uh, at that time in my life. And so I thought, yeah, it'd be a fun, fun romp uh, with Dogen through his adventures in China, and then um, uh, the world collapsed shortly thereafter. So um, I still want to talk about Dogen and the Tenzo Kyokun, and we'll see how it goes when we open it up for questions. You're welcome to ask whatever you want. It doesn't have to be, yeah, it can be about the Golden State Warriors for all I care. Um, whatever you want to talk about, you can, you can feel free to ask. Um, but I do want to talk about this piece. And it's funny, um, in recollecting sort of my path of practice as Dogen was recollecting his path of practice, I was listening to a talk very recently by a teacher that I follow. He lives at Abayagiri, which is a Thai forest monastery in Northern California. It's in the Theravadan tradition, which is a different tradition, but he is a year older than me and he moved to Abayagiri a year before I moved to Green Gulch. And, and uh, I feel a lot of affinity with him. I also really appreciate his teaching. So I follow his talks and he, the last talk he gave, he actually said, you know, oh, he's also co-abbot of Abayagiri now because he's been there for so long. And he said, you know, it's funny, after seven years of practice, I thought I really understood a lot about Zen. And now that I've been practicing 17 years, I really feel like I know a lot less. Um, and he didn't say Zen, he said <laughs> the Buddha Dharma. But um, yeah, I mean, that's exactly, I can relate completely after 17 years. And, and he said, oh yeah, and after a few years, I was like, oh, I can't wait to be abbot of a Bayagiri and I can create you know, the perfect Buddhist monastery. And then they asked him to be abbot and he was like, why? I'm just some guy, <laughs> don't ask me, I can't do this. Um, and that's really what I feel, what I feel like, especially being asked to, to give these talks, to speak. 
especially to this time in the world, and also to speak about the sort of towering wisdom of Dogen Zenji. Uh, unfortunately, Dogen Zenji did not often express that kind of, of humility. Um, more often, he said things like, nobody in Japan understands Buddhism except me, and, uh, and I need to go to China, and um, nobody in China understands <laughs> except my teacher, Rujing. Um, so he had a lot of confidence that I find lacking in my own life and practice many, uh, oftentimes. But the only thing I feel confident in is the teaching that I think is what Dogen is offering. Uh, the teaching that every moment of your life is the practice of your life. It is exactly what your life is asking you to attend to. And it is exactly what is required for enlightened reality to come forth and actually for everyone to wholeheartedly engage in just this moment of their life is exactly what is required for enlightened reality to come forth, um, the perfection of the Dharma. Suzuki Roshi, who founded Zen Center, he called it the heart's inmost request. So this, this teaching of wholehearted living that Dogen offered is what's required for the heart's inmost request to sort of come forth. And he went to China, he went to China to find that. He went to China to find enlightenment. And that's kind of why I also, again, feel a lot of affinity because when I moved to Tassajara, that's pretty much it. I, when you go to Tassajara, I, I don't know how they do it now, but back then you had to fill out a little note card with your name and your emergency contact and maybe your birthday and the, the day you arrived and the day you planned on leaving. And I don't remember doing this, but um, years later, they asked me you know, during one of those downtimes when I didn't have a task, they said, oh, can you go through all of our emergency contact note cards and just throw away the ones for people who are long gone? and are unlikely to come back. And then I saw mine and I found mine and it said, you know, date of arrival, like April 12, 2006 or something. And then for date of departure, I just wrote an infinity symbol um, because I had really, I went to Tassajara with no plan B. I really went to wake up, to wake up to whatever I felt in my heart reality was asking me to wake up to. And uh, I have been tenderized and humbled in the 14 years since. And again, uh, every day is a new, a new lesson in how little I know and how little I've, uh, I've uh, uncovered and discovered. But also a renewed commitment to this wholehearted living without knowing exactly what it's supposed to look like. And so what Dogen got from his teacher, Rujin, was the practice of wholehearted sitting and dropping off body and mind. It's a famous story that that was the transmission between Dogen and Rujin, that when Rujin taught him the practice of wholeheartedly sitting and dropping off body and mind. So it can be a very kind of dense phrase, dropping off body and mind, and, and I'm sure a lot of teachers over the centuries have had a lot of different things to say about it. And in fact, I have what Keizan Zenji had to say about it. And what he had to say about it is pretty intense. And some modern scholars think he was kind of making it up that it didn't really come from Dogen, that it was really Keizan's 
um, extended uh, understanding of it. Um, so I might get to that because it's pretty interesting, but uh, what Dogen said, reading said, dropping off body and mind was, was all it is is wholehearted sitting and uh, removing the six coverings, which I really like. I don't know how the words work in Chinese, but I love that in English, removing a cover, another way of saying that is to discover. And so I do feel like the teaching of, of this school is that your perfect nature is already manifest. It's just covered by these coverings and wholehearted sitting allows you to discover the sort of perfection that's already, already there. And the, five, the six coverings, sorry, I keep thinking of it as five because the first five are the five hindrances of original Buddhism which are desire and aversion and restlessness and laziness and also doubt. And it's the type of doubt that keeps you from trusting the teachings and also keeps you from trusting that the little voice in your head that tells you there's a better life just around the corner is actually wrong and, and needs more care and compassion than it needs sort of wholehearted commitment to um, of achieving whatever ends it's begging you to achieve. So doubt about, doubt about how little uh, chasing after desire and aversion is offering. I think that's, that's how I think of the fifth, the fifth hindrance. And then the sixth covering is ignorance, the teaching of ignorance, which is actually reaching said is the most important that actually the the five hindrances are immediately removed as long as ignorance is, is discovered and the, the wisdom underneath is is discovered and so wholehearted how wholehearted sitting works in that is that you've probably experienced it if you've done meditation you sort of if you are sitting there completely you kind of forget, you can forget. I have noticed uh, moments of forgetting to pick up body and mind. I've noticed moments of forgetting to have desires and aversions and of you know, forgetting that there's a better life around the corner, which is my sort of default setting as I go through life. And those moments are incredibly potent. And what they do is they allow us to take that off the cushion as well. So it's not just practice while sitting. Dogen says that explicitly. This is not only practice while sitting. It is like a hammer striking emptiness is his line. But um, so it's sort of like trying to hit the mark is beside the point, actually. This wholeheartedness is something that, that happens. And I think wholehearted sitting is, is the best sort of first step and then what happens is you, you forget to pick up body and mind and then all these beings come forth and you can see what they're asking, what kind of help they're asking for and then you can help, which is the Bodhisattva vow. So I think of in these terms of dropping off body and mind, I think of the Bodhisattva vow as intentionally picking up body and mind for the sake of others, not for the sake of the self, not for the sake of maintaining this sense of a separate identity, maintaining the sense of a body and mind that is separate from all these other sort of hostile bodies and minds, um, but actually intentionally being myself for the sake of helping others. And I want to share a quote 
from a teacher that I spoke, a uh, teacher that I'm very close to. He teaches about a mile away from here at the Hartford Street Zendo in the Castro. His name is Mio Leahy. And he is also was ordained by Reb Anderson, who I was ordained by. And I was having a practice discussion with him once and I was freaking out about something. And I had no idea what to do. And I was like, what do I do? What do I do? And he said, you know, oftentimes one or more beings are asking for help. When they are, just help them. And in between, be at peace. And that, that's good enough for me. That's, that's been good enough for me ever since. Just, and I would almost reverse those and say, be at peace. And from there, you can actually hear everyone asking for help and how they're asking for help and what you can do. I think of saving all beings, and it's not just me, I've heard many teachers say it, saving all beings really does begin in sort of my own heart mind, all the beings inside that are frightened and petty or stressed out or depressed and even happy or elated or exuberant, right? If, if there's ever a being inside that's saying, finally, this is what I need. This is all I needed to be happy and now I've got it. Um, that is really lighting a fuse for future suffering. And so really to be at peace is to be able to meet all of those different iterations of myself with care and fearlessness and then to move that to everyone else that I encounter in my life and every moment in my life. I wanna read, um, there's another teacher, he's a friend of mine in Los Angeles, his name is Brad Warner, and I really appreciate his teaching. And he actually, he has two books of translations of essays by this, this teacher, A.A. Dogen, and the way Brad writes them is in much more simple English and modern English, which I really appreciate. I appreciate studying them side by side with the more scholarly translations, and he's pretty clear that you should do that too, if, if you're up for it. But um, what his version does is it really helps get a foothold because Dogen can be very difficult to, to uh, understand at first blush. And so here he, and he actually did translate Tenzo Kyokun, so I'll hopefully be sharing some of his, but this is part of his commentary on it. So there's a phrase in this, this essay where Dogen says, all day and all night, stuff will come through your mind and you'll deal with it. Just keep your attention on what you're doing and don't get distracted. That's Brad's version, Taigen Dan Layton, who's another one of the translators. His version is all day and all night things, things come to mind and the mind attends to them. At one with them all, diligently carry on the way. So here's, here's Brad, Brad's comment on that. It's an important phrase, so let's talk about it. People ask me all the time about doing meditation off the cushion. Meditation isn't just something you do for 30 minutes on a zafu. It's something you carry into the rest of your life and work. In a way, that's kind of what this entire essay is about, Tenzo Kyokun, and, and I agree. Um, of course, sitting silently is a special form of meditation. Dogen insisted that 
zazen was a necessary practice for anyone following the Buddhist way. Yet in another sense, everything you do is a kind of meditation, whether or not you know it. Once you notice that everything is meditation, you can start to give everything your full attention. No special state of concentration is necessary to transform cooking up a pot of rice into a meditation. But giving whatever you do your full attention makes whatever you do that much better. And I do really think that's the essence of, of this essay, is that there's no other life waiting for you, that every moment of your life is the practice enlightenment of this moment. It's what this moment is asking you to tend to. And that is the best way to help all beings and save all beings. It's to experience the peace of wholeheartedness, the uh, non-self of wholeheartedness, and then, and, and people are more than welcome to disagree with me, but the way I feel about the Bodhisattva Pao, it's sort of from that piece, intentionally picking up the self in order to help others. And so I, that's just some thoughts about the essay. So I think those two things are what he's teaching. Wholeheartedness, in every moment and also, oh, also an endlessness to the practice. That's the most important part. If there's no life waiting around the corner, then this moment is actually ceaseless and endless. And that's, to me, the most important aspect of Dogen's teaching that I feel isn't really spoken about much when people are writing about, especially this essay and maybe other things that it's, people talk about wholeheartedness, that wholehearted piece that gets spoken of quite a bit but the fact that it will never end is the Bodhisattva vow. And I think that's uh, just as important to Dogen and actually is exactly what Dogen learned when he went to China. He went to China looking for the final moment that would, uh, that would achieve nirvana or achieve whatever he, whatever restlessness was in him would, would put that to rest forever. And what he came back with was actually every single moment that needs to be tended to. And that is enlightenment. That is the culmination of all of the teachings, not reaching some state which will continue of its own, uh, but actually the sort of groundlessness of all being requires our grounded being in an infathomable way. But the proof of it is that we're here now. That's undeniable, according to Dogen. And so to be here without any sense of needing to be somewhere else or not needing and, sorry, and not needing to be anywhere else, not needing that to end ever <laughs> and to renew that commitment every moment at all times for all time. And Dogen, so again, Dogen was pretty intense about his practice in the early days. And there's a reason for that that I want to get into because his life was pretty interesting. Um, and I, I'm, I can imagine, you know, why he felt he needed to sort of attain this enlightenment that he had heard about. Um, I have had a life which is not without difficulty, 
but I almost feel like it is child's play <laughs> compared to Dogen and compared to maybe anyone living in Japan in the 12th and 13th centuries. Um, I'm gonna switch screens and hopefully that did nothing to your ability to see me. Um, is that true, Kota? Uh, you look clear to me. Okay, great. So I'm gonna read something. This was written by a Buddhist monk shortly before Dogen was born. So Dogen didn't actually live through this. His mom would have been a teenager, but um, definitely Japan was not without similar, pro similar issues uh, while Dogen was alive. So, okay. There was a famine in the country, which lasted two years, a most terrible thing. A drought persisted through the spring and summer while the autumn and winter brought storm and floods. One disaster followed another and the grains failed to ripen. All in vain was the labor of tilling the soil in spring or planting in summer, for there was none of the joy of the autumn reaping or winter harvest. Some of the people as a result abandoned their lands and crossed into other provinces. Some forgot their homes and went to live in the mountains. All manner of prayers were begun and extraordinary devotions performed, but without the slightest effect. The capital had always depended on the countryside for its needs and when supplies ceased to come, it became quite impossible for people to maintain their composure. They tried in their desperation to barter for food one after another, however cheaply, but no one desired them. The rare person who was willing to trade had contempt for money and set a high value on grain. Many beggars lined the roads and their doleful cries filled the air. Thus the first year of the famine at last drew to a close. It was thought that the new year would see an improvement, but it brought instead the additional affliction of epidemics and there was no sign of any amelioration. The people were starving and the passage of days approached the extremity like fish gasping in insufficient water. Finally, people of quality wearing hats and with their legs covered were reduced to going from house to house desperately begging. Overwhelmed by misery, they would walk in a stupor only presently to collapse. The number of those who died of starvation outside the gates or along the roads may not be reckoned. There being no one even to dispose of the bodies, a stench filled the whole world. There were many sides of, sights of decomposing bodies too horrible to behold. Along the banks of the Kamo River, there was not even room for horses and cattle to pass. The lower classes and the woodcutters were also at the end of their strength, and as even firewood grew scarce, those without other resources broke up their own houses and took the wood to sell in the market. The amount, of a, the amount obtainable for all that a man could carry, however, was not enough to sustain life a single day. Strange to relate, among the sticks of firewood were some to which bits of vermilion or gold and silver still adhered. This, I discovered, came about because people with no other means of living were robbing the old temples and their holy images, or breaking up the furnishings of the sacred halls for firewood. It was because I was born in a world of foulness and evil that I was forced to witness such heartbreaking sights. The old Buddhists really love to talk like that. There were other exceedingly unhappy occurrences in the case of husbands and wives who refused to separate. The ones whose affections were stronger were, the, were certain to die first. This was because uh, they thought of themselves second and gave to their beloved whatever food they occasionally managed to get. With parents and children, it inevitably happened that the parents died first. Sometimes an infant, not realizing that his mother was dead, would lie beside her, sucking at her breast. 
the abbot Ryukyo of the Ninaji temple, grieving for the countless people who were dying, gathered together a number of priests who went about writing the letter A on the forehead of every corpse they saw, thus establishing communion with the Buddha. In an attempt to determine how many people had died, they made a count during the fourth and fifth months and found within the boundaries of the capital over 42,000 corpses lying in the streets. What would the total have been had it included all who had died before or after that period, both within the city and in the outskirts, and what if all the provinces of Japan had been included? I've heard that a similar disaster occurred 50 years ago during the reign of Emperor Satoku, but I did not myself experience that. Um, so, yeah, and I think I did, I did look it up and I can't remember now. I think there were maybe, I think there was like 150,000 people in Kyoto. So for 40,000 people to die, if that's if the numbers to be believed, that is um, quite a serious disaster. And that's definitely what Dogen's parents would have lived through and what he would have, would have been born into. And he was also born uh, illegitimately in the phrase of the time, his grandfather, was in a family that uh, had fallen on hard times. And so he basically pawned his daughter off onto an aristocrat who was already married and had several other children, but sort of pawned his wife off onto an aristocrat to bear a child. And that child was Ehe Dogen, this, this teacher who became a Zen monk and a great uh, ancestor, the first Zen ancestor of Soto Zen in Japan. But so he was born uh, sort of seemingly uh, of illegitimate birth. And as if that wasn't bad enough, his father died when he was only two years old. And then his mother died when he was seven. And so without parents, uh, he, he was sort of fought over by his relatives actually who wanted to use his father's lineage to for their own political ends and, and to sort of gain status within the aristocracy. So he, his mother's son from another father adopted him uh, to sort of save him from his uncle who would have um, seemingly, the history is very difficult, uh, 800 years on, but seemingly this other uncle was maybe not the most generous person. And so his half-brother took care of him for a while until he was 12 and then he found out his uncle was a monk in this school of Tendai Buddhism, which is the school of the Lotus Sutra, which is actually very important. It remained a very important sutra for Dogen for the rest of his life, which means it's a very important sutra in Soto Zen to this day. And had everything to do with why he went to China. So anyway, so, okay, father's dead, mom's dead. He moves to a Tendai temple uh, with his uncle. His uncle dies within five years. He moves to a Rinzai temple the abbot he trains with dies within a year. Then he finds another teacher named Myozen, who becomes a very important teacher in his life and is actually the one who facilitates the trip to China. So he and Myozen both kind of frustrated. Oh, also, not just his uncle dying, but these Tendai monasteries were at war. And they were literally at war. They were murdering each other. They had armies. They had standing armies and they were murdering each other. They were at war, uh, a religious war. And many of the monasteries were actually seen to be as politically powerful as some of the sort of secular powers. In, and the secular powers were also 
pretty out of control, actually. There were no fewer than two or three people claiming to be emperor at any one time. They were constantly murdering each other or exile whoever could get more power would exile the emperor and then claim themselves to be emperor. There was a war happening, a big war happening at the exact year Dogen went to China. So clearly there was a lot of turmoil in his life that made him think this path was a way, uh, was a way, maybe a way out at the time. But later, I think he sort of cured himself of thinking it was a way out. So Mio Zen and he go to China. He, that journey was by no means guaranteed. I mean, I can't even imagine what it must be like that anytime you left a city, bandits could just murder you or at the, you know, take all your stuff, maybe murder you. They somehow got to a port, they got on a boat, he got a horrible illness, a parasite, maybe giardia or dysentery or something. He was extremely sick, thought he was going to die, and then there was a storm in the sea. And so back then, storms could just destroy a boat and drown everyone inside. And he said the storm was so bad, he completely forgot how sick he was. And he prayed to Avalokiteshvara, the Bodhisattva of Compassion. And his exact phrase is, I trusted my life to the roaring waves, which I think is a really beautiful sentiment. And I think probably what sustained him, a spirit that sustained him the rest of his life. I trusted my life to the roaring waves and the storm, the boat was able to survive the storm. They made it to the port in China. He was unable to disembark because he didn't have certification to be a monk in China, actually. Monks in China at that time took the full Vinaya precepts of the original school of Buddhism. So that's like 250 precepts. He had only taken Mahayana precepts with the Tendai school. And uh, Miozen, the person he was with, the Rinzai school at that time, still took the 250 Vinaya precepts. So he was able to leave and join a monastery. And Dogen was stuck on the boat, I think, for several <laughs> months. Um, sick, you know, as he said, he's like almost dying. And, and that's when he met a monk who got on the boat and, and stopped, talked to him about Zen and kind of turned his mind around. A uh, story we'll get to when we get into the essay. So he's fearing for his life. Everyone in his life is dying. He finally gets off the boat. He can join a monastery that allows him to join. Mountain Jing is the name of the monastery. Um, the abbot there dies within a year. He, he expresses a lot of sadness about this because um, I think he, well, I actually see, probably can't find it. But um, he had a really, funny exchange when he met the abbot. And it just shows you what kind of person he was. Here we go. So when he was, when he was, you know, just a lad of 24. So the abbot of Mount Jing said, when did you arrive in China? And Dogen said, last April. And Jing, the, uh, the abbot said, did you come here following the crowds? And Dogen said, well, I came here with some companions. Is there something wrong with that? I think it's a good thing. And the abbot said, you are a young novice who is never at a loss for words. And Dogen said, maybe. What's wrong with that? And the abbot said, this conversation has ended. Have some tea. 
And I think Dogen really appreciated sort of this abbot not, uh, not engaging his, his arrogance. Um, so the abbot died after a year. And then meanwhile, the abbot of the monastery Dogen had wanted to go to with his teacher Miozen, that abbot also died. And the new abbot who took over was Tiantong Rujing, who in our Japanese lineage, we pronounce Tendo Nyojo Daiosho. So it's the person who actually transmitted the Soto lineage to Dogen. Dogen didn't really know that. The story is that he heard about this, this new abbot, um, but it's kind of mythologized. And so people don't know exactly how much he knew, but he clearly went back to the temple to be with Miozen, who was the Rinzai teacher he had been training with for the last few years and who he had come to China with. He gets there just in time for Miozen to die. Miozen dies a month after Dogen gets to uh, Mount Tiantong, the monastery at Tiantong, and then he meets Rujing. And he's able to train with Rujing. Rujing is his teacher, transmits him the Soto Zen lineage just in time to die. He dies two years after Dogen meets him. So it's obviously a pattern in Dogen's life. Death was always close at hand and the uncertainty of life and the uncertainty of even having another moment to practice, I think is, is palpable in all of his writings and all of his teachings, just how lucky he felt just to have one more day uh, to honor the Buddhas and ancestors. And there's a, a scholar named Heejin Kim who has written a lot about Dogen and there's this phrase that I really, it really touched me. He said, Dogen's way of life was a compassionate understanding of the intolerable reality of existence. I really, I, that really speaks to me. I think Heejin Kim and I are, are of a piece in that. And so I, there's, there's other aspects of Tenzo Kyokun, uh, which Dogen, which also give, give light to this, that he, he understood how, just how lucky he was to be alive. You know, it, it takes on a cosmological significance in Buddhism of having a human birth, as opposed to an animal birth or a heavenly birth or a hell birth where practice is not possible. But I think what Dogen, uh, even if you don't wanna believe in that kind of metaphysical cosmology, I think it's easy to, to believe that Dogen felt every day he woke up, you know, was a, a marvelous opportunity that he was lucky to have. And uh, that comes through in Tenzo Kyokun. And so Tenzo Kyokun is, is called instructions to the cook. The Tenzo is the head of the kitchen at a Zen temple. And so Dogen, it's funny because Dogen really, in the essay too, he even writes about his earlier years where he had to be sort of turned around by these great compassionate teachers when he would say, why are you working? Why aren't you just studying the sutras? Why aren't you reading koans? Why aren't you, and again, why aren't you just wholeheartedly sitting? Um, and they would say, why do you think that's all there is to Buddhism and to uh, the Bodhisattva way? And so this essay is an essay for the cook at a temple and the job of a cook at a Zen temple is a very demanding one. And it requires a lot of time outside of the, outside of the Zendo, outside of formal practice, outside of time to study the teachings, which may be the reason someone came to a Zen temple in the first place. And so this is, this is an essay about 
taking that wholeheartedness that you that drew you to Buddhism in the first place, taking that into into the kitchen, into chopping vegetables and cooking food and serving the community and actually sustaining everyone. And then, so this is also integral to Dogen's teaching, right? Is that enlightenment actually depends on us deluded sentient beings, every bit as much as us deluded sentient beings are sustained by enlightened reality. So he uses the kitchen work and the Tenzo as a, as a symbol of that, as an embodiment of that, that in order to practice, the monks need to eat, and in order to eat, somebody needs to cook. So actually, the Tenzo can only be a Tenzo if there are monks to receive the offerings, and monks can only engage in their practice if the Tenzo is there to cook for them. And so it's this inability to escape the, uh, the unfolding of enlightenment, that is what Dogen wanted to offer, especially to some of the temple workers who may have felt like they were outside of, of where the action was. And I think that might be enough. I think 8.30 is our time to stop. So there's two more talks coming. I think the next week I'm going to get really get into the stories of the essay itself and sort of talk about Dogen's teaching around that and, and his, um, yeah, some of the great poetic images that he uses that I think really are just, I, I, you never really see it in the other things he writes that um, they really tickle me, I guess. And then with the third talk, I want to talk about the end of the essay where he talks about the mind of enlightenment and the mind that a practitioner needs to bring to every moment of their life, joyful mind parental mind and great mind or magnanimous mind and how those three kinds of minds are also a life of practice in themselves and encompass the entirety of Dogen's teaching. And uh, Soto Zen too, actually, there's a very famous talk by Suzuki Roshi that really relates to these three kinds of minds that Dogen writes about. So those are going to be the next two Wednesdays. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your financial support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information, please visit sfzc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.